Well, you probably know by now uh, of John Bunyan for his uh, known work in Pilgrim's Progress, but he also wrote another book called The Holy War. And The Holy War was about a benevolent king called King Shaddai, who ruled over a kingdom called Mansoul. So King Shaddai ruling over Mansoul. Mansoul was a colossal kingdom with what was known as impenetrable walls. You couldn't get in. And it was surrounded, or these walls were surrounded, and within them had five gates. These gates were known as the mouth gate, the eye gate, the ear gate, the feel gate, and the nose gate. And King Shaddai had one sworn enemy, someone called Diabolus, who was a traitor and wanted to topple King Shaddai more than anything else in his life. And so he came with this conundrum of how he could do this. How would he get into the walls of this kingdom and conquer this, what seems like, impenetrable fortress? He would do this by laying siege at the eye gate and the ear gate. And he wouldn't just bust through this, but what is written about in the book is that he would send his messengers to the outside of those gates where they would simply dangle beautiful fruit before the people's eyes. And when the people saw that the fruit looked good and looked like they were delightful to have to the eyes, and when they had heard that of the promises that Diabolus would tell them, the city then quickly fell. But there was no battle in this kingdom following, falling, the, the people just opened the gates and let the enemy in. Mansoul quickly fell and King Shaddai was thrown out because they listened and they looked at something that was told to them that was beautiful and good, but in reality they knew that it was wicked and evil. At this point in the book of Proverbs, you have probably seen what is just commonly known as repetition in the text. You've probably seen that after only four chapters before it, that in all 31 chapters of the book of Proverbs long, it's clear that there are certain wise ways that the writer wants his son to understand. There are thousands of lessons. Think about it practically. There are thousands of lessons that you could teach a son as he might grow up in honor and in the faith. But our text highlights yet another obvious desire from the biblical author that bears his own repeating. And so this is another case where something again was repeated for us that you might be tempted to quickly go past because you go, I've heard of this, I know it, I get it. It's the same words over and over, but it bears repeating what the author is telling his son to hear, that adultery is worse than death. How will the devil conquer you, Christian? How will he aim to ruin your soul? What we see from the book of Proverbs is that he will play the long, deceitful game with you about what is true and what is good. He'll aim to breach the walls of your eyes and ears instead of you seeing and hearing what God's good word says is good and true. So you could, on your own, take this passage and just skim right through it telling yourself, yeah, yeah, I get it, be pure, I get it, remain married, I get it, only hold myself to my spouse, or we can take it as the author intended, again and again and again, be attentive to the words of the Lord. This is something that every one of you will fight. Every one of us will fight this temptation that seems like it is just dangling 
in front of us. It is every man's battle. It is every woman's battle. Every one of us will fight and have to fight for what is pure because impurity is standing right in front of us. Everyone needs to know God's power to have victory in what this text is highlighting in such vivid detail to us that adultery is worse than death. The Bible is clear about the war that we were to wage against the sin of the flesh, the passion that is not ours to exercise, the zeal that is deadly. The Bible is clear. And how does someone get into the place in life where they're willing to give up everything to be with someone who is not their spouse? Romans chapter 6 gives us this command, let no one therefore, let no sin therefore reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions and gives us the hope and the answer in Romans chapter 13, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires. And so we're faced with with another view of what is being told so vividly to us in the book of Proverbs and elsewhere in the scriptures, that Christian, you have, you have two paths that you can live on. And one of them looks great, but leads to death. And one of them looks harsh or narrow, but leads to life. And how do you go from the path of righteousness that God has placed you on to the path of wickedness that our own sinful hearts go towards? Months ago, we heard from the book of Matthew, where Jesus says that adultery begins not by temptation, not by the fruit that is dangled out in front of us, not by screens, not by a video, not by an invitation, not by a flirtation, but by your own heart. Proverbs 5 is about arresting lust so that your marriage is one of joy and so that also it doesn't destroy your life. Proverbs 5, practically, you might drop it like a rock and it breaks apart and in a couple of clear ways. It's written as a hymn. It's written in very poetic measure with three major stanzas. Though my outline has four points, it has three major stanzas, much like you would sing a song, a poem that instructs the son how to steer clear from smooth, adulterous women. And so first, what, what the author is describing to a son is to identify what adultery or an adulterous pursuit looks like. So firstly, he tells us to identify in verses 1 through 6 what is adulterous. Look at what he says in verses 1 through 3. My son, be attentive to my wisdom. Incline your ear to my understanding that you may keep discretion and your lips may guard knowledgeable for the lips of a forbidden woman drip honey and her speech is smoother than oil. Look again at verse 3 with your eyes. This, this language, at least in my translation, says a forbidden woman. In some of your other translations, it might have something like a strange woman. Now, what is going on here? The, the literal, literal translation would have this be the other woman or the strange woman. And what needs to be noted here is she's not strange because she looks weird or she acts odd, but because she operates outside of the laws and customs of what was given to Israel. She acts strange because she is operating as an adulteress, meaning she doesn't care about God's law. She could care less about the ramifications of her own life. She only wants to go for what is hers in front of her. And the Hebrew word, the the proper rendering here would signify, especially in this context, that she's not just a random woman, but that she too is a married woman who is pursuing someone for the sake of an adulterous relationship, that she's been designated in our text, though, as an adulterer where she's signifying 
any where this word is signifying any woman who's pursuing someone else who is not theirs. Now, a quick aside immediately in this text, it would be a bad takeaway from this text, it would be a bad takeaway from the instruction of this word to give any reason that adultery happens because of women as a gender. So it would be a wrong takeaway to see women as bad, right? There is nothing disqualifying about someone having the gender of a woman here. Women as a gender do not cause adultery. Women are not second class in godliness. Jesus says that adultery, again, is from the heart. And this text, though, is written from a father to a son. This, this father is telling this son, be weary of what is out there as you are pursuing the Lord. In the same way, it could be from a mother to a daughter. Be weary of the men that you will meet in your life. So I just want to take that. I, I know it sounds very harsh about women, 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 evil, evil, evil. That's not what the text is saying here, right? It's saying that sin is evil and it appears to this man or this young man as an adulterer. Now, what kind of woman should Solomon, should Solomon's son avoid? The woman has something to say. There, there is something signified here of what the woman is saying. It says that the lips of a forbidden woman drip honey and her speech is smoother than oil. This woman is speaking in a charged, provocative way. Her lips are dripping honey. She's a flatterer, which is a common proverbial theme, using the lips to flatter someone. She knows what to say to make him disregard his own marriage. She knows that there's nothing more alluring to a man than to compliment his power or his attractiveness. And her lips don't just speak, though, because we need to recognize and remember what are lips biblically partly for. You may not hear this, may not know this coming. Lips are partly for kissing. The, the affection of one to another. And her lips don't just speak, but they kiss. This woman's mouth is a physical temptation to the man. This text literally might be translated, her palate is smoother than oil. The inside of her mouth is sweet and smooth. She's appealing to his ego, but also she's appealing to him sensually. He is falling into the trap of paying attention to someone who isn't his. And there's tension within this text already. Who is the son going to listen to? The instruction of his father who is writing to him and telling him things for his own benefit or is he going to pay attention of something that feels like it's dripping honey in his own life? And the instruction for all of us here at this point in this text is who are you, Christian, going to listen to? The alluring effects of the world will always try to distract you from the truth of the scriptures. And sometimes it will even use scriptural language to allure you outside of God's good covenant. We see this happening in Adam and Eve where, where Satan just kind of asked a question and caused confusion. He didn't directly say, no, it actually says this. He just goes, does God really say that? And so we have this, another case. And looking at paths, who are we going to listen to? The tension in this text heightens the allurement of how trapping this case is. You might think that this is another case where the father is telling the son, but as any young man notices, as they grow up, the allurement of ungodliness is always on the forefront of their own minds. For every one of us, the fight for holiness and righteousness is the fight for who we're going to listen to. Who are we going to believe? God's word, which promises to satisfy us and to make us happy? 
Or are we going to listen to the lie that sin will satisfy us? Sin promises happiness all the way around, but sin always winds up poisoning those who seem to go after its fruit. The father is telling the son that the honey from her lips is fool's gold. Look at verse 4. But in the end, she is bitter as wormwood, sharp as a two-edged sword. Wormwood, each time associated in the scripture, is associated with bitterness, poison, and death. It is practically a bitter plant in the context of this scripture being written. And the two-edged sword, what is a two-edged sword used for? Thrusting into armor. Not just cutting stuff off, but stabbing the heart. And the effect of this is shown in verse 5. Her feet go down to death. Her steps follow the path of Sheol. She lures you into death. In the heightened context here, in the Mosaic Covenant, the legal price for committing adultery for both sides is death. And so you could imagine the father is telling his son, avoid this because this may very well cost you your life. I want you to turn briefly, maybe over one page, to chapter 6, verse 27. Chapter 6, verse 27. Chapter 6, verse 27, it says, Can a man carry fire next to his chest and his clothes not be burned? It's obvious, practically, don't try this at home, that you cannot carry fire close to your chest and not burn your clothes. But the fool thinks here, let me try that out. Let me see how close I can get to catching my shirt on fire. Let Let me see how close I can come to the edge of despair. Let me see how much I can flirt with this person. Or talk to this other woman or man. Or text to the point where it's just a friendship, it's fine. And he's saying, it will kill you. Solomon is saying lust is like fire. The adulterer doesn't see sin's real promise of pain. It's foolishness, though he's calling out for the sake of his passions. He's willing to block out the truth of God's word. Now, friend, if any of you are playing with this fire... Are there things you're placing in front of you that give you space for pursuing sexual passion or sexual fulfillment outside of the confines of marriage? In singles, you too, if you've got things before you that tempt you to seek and have sexually fulfilling satisfaction outside of marriage, this word is yours too, to be attentive to, it says. This is for all of us. Friend, how do you think this fire winds up? Don't play the fool. Look at the text. Her steps follow the path of Sheol, which is the place where the dead go to rest. Friend, identify the seductive danger of adultery. But there's a second thing that that Solomon wants to bring our attention to, and that is to avoid the adulterer. Look at verses uh, 7 through 14. Specifically, let me read to you verses 7 through 8. And now, O sons, listen to me and do not depart from the words of my mouth. Keep your way far from her and do not go near the door of her house. Notice what the father doesn't say to this adulterous person in his life. He doesn't say, rebuke her. He doesn't say, disciple her. He doesn't say, witness to her. He doesn't even say, make this relationship a really cool friendship. What does he say? Verse 8, keep far away from her. Don't go near her. Avoid her, we would commonly say, like the plague. What do you do when you know that someone has COVID-19? You literally shut them in another room, don't you? And the wise person is the person who knows his own heart and recognizes that there are things that are too much for him. Scripture says 
that we are like broken pots. Even though in Christ we are repaired and made new, we are still broken. We're crooked on the inside, and there will be a point where we will be glorified and sinless no more. But in the meantime, even Christians have the Spirit of God in us, and we need God's guidance every step of our lives. If you're a Christian, the Spirit of God is subduing the passions of the flesh progressively throughout your life, but it is still a real battle. That's what it means to live as a Christian, showing self-control or restraint. It means that we don't welcome temptation in our lives because allowing it or pursuing it is like throwing literal logs on a literal fire. That's why Jesus teaches us to pray in Matthew 6, lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. And Paul would later command in his own words, flee also youthful lusts. And in Proverbs 5, the son is being told to avoid this seductive temptation, to flee from it. In the same way that we recognize what did Joseph do? What did Joseph do when Potiphar's wife summoned him to her bed? He ran away and he didn't even grab his own coat. He was willing to suffer the cold in order to get out because it was better to live than to die. Now, what happens to you if you don't run? Okay, what happens to you if you just kind of flirt with this a little bit? Look at verse 9. Lest you give your honor to others and your years to the merciless, lest strangers take their fill of your strength and your labors go to the house of a foreigner, and at the end of your life you groan when your flesh and your body are consumed. Now, what does this passage mean, this particular couple of verses? What he's describing is a guy giving his life away by entering into sin. And what's important to notice is that Solomon is drawing a straight line from the temptation to the consequences, that there is a consequence to a sinful action, and in this case, pattern of sinful actions. Harshly, what this text, I think, is showing us is what I think is being spoken of is that the very seed of the adultering man will produce offspring. You see that in verse 10. And that will draw physically his honor dry. Today we call that child support. Right? Where you are no longer in control of what you just put out. And for generation after generation, this text is saying it will physically, and as a Christian we recognize also spiritually, seemingly suck you dry. Practically, he'll lose the love of his life, the respect of his children, the control of his mind. And he says here in the text that he'll be displayed in front of, look at verse 14, in front of the assembled congregation at the brink of utter ruin. Friend, if you don't view sin with the intense seriousness that this text exposes to us, and it's not just this sin but also all other sin, all other blots in our life that separate us from God's holiness and glory. If you don't view sin with an intense seriousness, a pathway of unrighteousness, a road to a fire, you're not looking at sin the way it's prevented in Scripture. And what Solomon is doing is take my advice. Run away. Look at verse 12 and 13. And you say how I hated discipline and my heart despised reproof. I did not listen to the voice of my teachers or incline my ear to my instructors. The father tells his son, you will say, son, I should have listened when I had a chance, but now I'm a fool. 
I'm reminded of a story of a dad who kept catching his son smoking out back behind the barn. And he kept telling his son to stop smoking, in part because smoking is bad for you, but also, who do you know, where do you know what's going to happen with those cigarette butts? Well, one day the son thought he was putting out a cigarette, but he didn't. And one thing led to another, and it not only caught his yard on fire, but also the barn, but it kept growing and growing quickly because there was drought in the land. And after the dad called everyone he could, instead of grabbing his own hose, he told his son to get into the truck. And they drove around the valley to the other side of their farm, and they found a spot where the dad could see everything, and the son could see everything. And he noticed that everything appeared to be on fire, and the son started weeping, recognizing what had been done. And the son looked up at the dad, and he said, what do I do now? And the dad looked at him, and he said, watch it until it's over. I told you. The wise person identifies sin and avoids it and flees it, put it to death. We see this clearly in the scriptures. But thirdly, he gives us a taste of, of why he's doing this. Thirdly, you've got to hold on to what is given to you, he says. You ought to have what God has provided you. We see this in verses 15 through 20, where you should have what God has given you and be content in what God has provided. Look at verse 15. Drink water from your own cistern, flowing water from your own well. What's a way to counter the adultering woman to the man or to the woman who is in a covenant of marriage to flee it? Yes, but also to drink water from your own cistern. The metaphor here is clear. It doesn't need explanation. He's comparing the sexuality of a man's wife and says, son, go home. Enjoy the gift of the Lord. Look at verses 16 through 19. Should your springs be scattered abroad, streams of water into the streets, let them alone be for yourself and for not for strangers with you. Let your fountain be blessed and rejoice in the wife of your youth. A lovely deer and a graceful doe, let her breasts fill you at all times with delight. Be intoxicated always with her love. Friends, for many of you, welcome to the Old Testament. The uncomfortability of what you just read there, many of you probably didn't see that coming from Proverbs at this point, right? We've all read Proverbs a long time, a lot of way through, but then we, we skip over this part really quickly. The metaphors need no explanation. They mean exactly what you think they mean in a covenant of marriage. They express the delight of a husband and a wife who are given to one another for one another's satisfaction and happiness. The father is saying to his son, one way to keep your eyes off of the adulteress is to have them train on your wife. He's not saying that keeping your home life spicy will keep you from sin, but he is saying, what has been given to you, and do you trust God with God's gifts in your life, and are you discontent in what God has provided to you? He is saying, it's one of the means that God gives us to avoid the seduction from outside of the home. That's why Paul spoke the way he did to the widows when they were struggling with whether they should remarry. It says in 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verses 8 through 9, to the unmarried and the widows, I say that it is good for them to remain single as I am. But if they cannot exercise self-control, they should marry. For it is better to marry than to burn with passion. 
Paul says that he wishes people could act like him and be in single as he is. But it's good that if you have those passions to pursue them within marriage. Marriage helps, Paul is saying. It helps you not pursue things improperly. In 1 Corinthians 7, uh, verses 2 and 3, uh, Paul says that, but because of the temptation to sexual immorality, each man should have his own wife and each woman her own husband. The husband should give to his wife her conjugal rights and likewise the wife to her husband. Do not deprive one another except perhaps by agreement for a little time that you may devote yourselves to prayer, but then come together again so that Satan may not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. Do you want to avoid temptation? Drink from your own cistern, flowing waters from your own well. He's illustrating why we do sin. Why do we sin? Because we are discontent. We are not content in what God has given us. You've got a false sense of God and a false sense of what has been given to you in life. That's why you sin. That's why you go after money that isn't yours. That's why you try to dominate someone in a relationship. That's why you look at someone who isn't yours. Because if you were just reminded and focused, you would be dazzled what the Word of God is saying and what He has given you. Now, the instruction for verses 15 through 20 is good, says the author, but it's not enough. Avoiding the adulteress is not good enough. It's good, but it won't bring you home. And even coming home won't change your heart. We recognize completely through the lens of the New Testament. So again, remember that we read these Proverbs through the lens of Christ where Christ tells you and Christ tells me and Christ tells us that at the root of of everything is actually the heart that needs to be remade. We have a heart that needs to be regenerated. We have a heart that needs to be renewed. That's why the answer isn't to trade in one for the other or get a better one down the road, but to recognize that I'm actually the broken one in this relationship. I'm actually the one that has my eyes on an adulterer. I'm actually the one that needs my heart to be retuned and focused on what is good and what is pure. And we read here a drastic warning. Look at verses 21 through 23, this ultimate level of accountability here in the writing from Solomon to his son. For a man's ways are before the eyes of the Lord, and he ponders all his paths. The iniquities of the wicked ensnare him, and he is held fast to the cords of his sin. He dies for the lack of discipline, and because of his great folly, he is led astray. Now what this means for you, Christian, is that you will answer to God for what you do. Remember the instruction that we're given from Proverbs 1. Stuff matters. Your life matters. Your, your decisions matter. You will answer to him for everything. You will be laid bare, and God will open what has been covered. You don't have any secrets before him. Now, for most of you, adultery won't come after you like a freight train, and it Typically never does. Usually it begins subtly, which means you've got to give insight and understanding so that you can kill the weed as it's a small one rather than allowing it to grow into something that is beyond your control or capability of handling. Now I need you to hear me tell you that the most important thing from this chapter, Proverbs is full of advice. Proverbs 5 is clear on the advice that is given. Godly, ordained, good advice for the good life, but it's advice for the righteous. I think you have to read this like you do the Sermon on the Mount through the lens of Christ. This proverb would have been something that Christ would have read and known at a very young age as a very young boy. 
It would have been something that he would have heard from Joseph, a father telling his son this instruction. It and all the other scriptures would have been on his mind as he applied wise instruction to his everyday life, like we are called to live. Now I want you to turn over to Matthew chapter 5, just so I've, I've listed it a little bit, but just so your eyes are on the page, turn to Matthew chapter 5, verses 27 through 30. You have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. This is where Christ brightens the law and also executes it at the real issue. If your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than your whole body be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off. And throw it away, for it is better that you lose one of your members than your whole body go into hell. See, see some of the things that are seemingly repeated here as wisdom from the great wise one pours out to all of us. And so we come to this conundrum of what do we do now? Paul helps us in Romans chapter 13. But put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires. The, the writer, Solomon here, is telling us to focus on the Lord who sees us, to give ourselves over to the Lord who recognizes every ounce who we are. Christ tells us this command, and Paul amplifies it by putting on the Lord Jesus Christ. Our scriptures are clear that Jesus endured hardship, temptation, and evil, things that we can never Imagine we're thrusted onto him. Things that you have endured have been placed on his lap. Overwhelming hardship was always before him. He was Jesus, a real man, though incredibly and precisely perfect. He endured and overcame all the things that were placed on him. Because why? His heart was set on obeying his heavenly father. His ambition was not on worldly satisfactions. He was not lured by the honey, or the wonderful palate. His perfect desire, his life doing the Father's purpose, ultimately would cost him his life. And because he was who he was, he was unbelievably hated. But why? Christian, you need to recognize that it was in the Father's good and gracious will to love you, Christian, before the foundation of the world. He decided in eternity past to bring you to himself, even though you would be separated from him because of your sin. And the gravity of point number one that we see in this case and from my outline showcases the weight of God's love that he has towards his people. That in their sin, he saw them and draw them near. Out of his love, he decided to save you from the punishment that your sins deserve by making a sacrifice on your behalf. He saw you as not only sinful, but unable to help your own cause. You're not even able to run away. You're not able to avoid. You're able to sit. And the description of the scripture is you are sitting there in death. And that's the very life of his son. What it caused is a rebirth from your life. He gave over the sacrifice. That means more to him than anything else. He gave over his own son. It is in the father's desire, the scriptures say, to send his son, the divine son of God, into our world to take on flesh to himself so that he would be like you in every measure. Seeing the temptation like you have, enduring the hardship like you have, 
so that he can sympathize where you should have been placed. He would be like us in that he would stand in our place, but he would be unlike us in that nothing about him deserved the consequences of our action, our will, our desire. God made Jesus to be sin, though Jesus knew no sin, so that we would be saved from our own sin. Friend, when you read and hear Proverbs 5, the insanity of adultery is wrong, and the alluring joy of marriage is clear, and God loved his people in such a way that Jesus bore the punishment for those sins so that we could, in eternal perspective, taste the joy of salvation forever. Do you see the parallel here of the wandering heart and the drawing near of our Savior? The one who never looked at a woman wrongly. The one who never reached for someone sinfully. The the one who never thought of a woman sexually. He was crushed for sinners. And so the application of this text is to be sorrowful for and repentant from the dark heart that we bring, think about this, that our hearts bring to the cross. The application is to confess to God that we are unworthy, we are sinful, we are unclean, and to ask Him to forgive us our sins. We should call out to Him that we are not right, and without Him we would choose the path of wickedness and ask Him to purify us, to have His Spirit, and to clean us. And guide us to righteousness. Friends, you need to recognize and hear from this abundantly wise author that adultery is worse than death. But Christ's sacrifice on the cross provides eternal life. God's word is clear about what is true. And God's son Jesus is clear about he is good. He invites all sinners to taste and see what is right. Our scriptures call us to live an honorable life in reflection of our honorable God. It's him that we might live in light of. It's him that we are fueled by. It's him that we bring glory to. It's him that we are content in. It's him that we are rich in. It's his power that supplies us fully. And may our eyes see him for who he is and fall before him in faith and repentance. Let's pray together. Our gracious and heavenly Father, it is without doubt that there are many of us in this room who feel undone by the truth and the reality of this text, and we pray that your Spirit would direct them towards your Son's perfection and His holiness. Lord, we pray for your Spirit's regenerating work to take sinners and to bring, breathe life into them so that they can see you as the groomsmen that they need. Lord, we pray that you would have us respond in confession for the sins that we commit. We pray that you would give us the power by your spirit to turn from our sins and repent of our sins. Oh Lord, you know and we know that we have wrecked havoc in our lives and in the lives of those we love through sexual immorality. We pray that you would forgive us. We pray that you would give us fresh wine and new wineskins. Lord, we pray that you would have us be completely satisfied in you so that everything that is outside of your good gift 
is distasteful to us. Lord, we pray that you would give us hearts that enjoy the fruit that you have given us. Lord, we pray now for the marriages in this room. That you would cause men and women to return home and enjoy what you have given them. Lord, we pray that young people, as they think about marriage, that they would see it as a bright and good and joyful thing. And that it would be a foretaste of them, of the banquet feast that you will provide us that will quench our thirst and feed our bellies forever. Lord, we pray that you would have a heightened, that you would heighten the view of marriage and purity within this church, that you would give us courage to honor men who are pursuing purity, women who are pursuing purity. We pray that you would give us times of drawing out confession from brothers and sisters that we love who are going after things that are not right. But Lord, we pray more than anything that you would satisfy us with the awareness of your presence in our lives that is only good. Lord, keep us on the path of righteousness. We pray this in the name of your son, Jesus. Amen.